You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus, which we are recording on Thursday the 16th of November. And we're going to talk today about why chopping wood arguably makes you more Swedish, why inhabitants in a Swedish town are being encouraged to say hello to strangers. We'll cast a critical eye over Swedish political parties' autumn congresses. We'll examine the state of the economy as the central bank decides whether to raise interest rates again. We'll also chat about why Greta Thunberg was in the news over comments on Palestine. And finally, we'll take a broader look at how attitudes to Israel and Palestine have changed in Sweden over the past few decades. I'm your host, Paul O'Mahony, and I'm in Stockholm. And I'm joined today from our Malmö studio by our regular panelists, Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Richard, you revealed in our group chat the other day that you were out chopping wood at the weekend, which, apart from being very impressive, you said made you feel more Swedish. Why do you think that was? I just think so much of being Swedish is about doing, being able to do these kind of really practical things. And I'm extremely unhandy. I can't even change a plug, really. I mean, I can, but I have to look at, look at, look at YouTube and stuff. And I just never thought that I would end up being the sort of person who like is you know chopping and splitting and stacking firewood. But if you get married to a Swede, you don't really have a choice. I mean, you just just seems to be what people do. And uh, when I mentioned it to Emma, she said, oh, but can you beck it and slip, slap, which means to to like reverse a trailer. You know, you have to like turn the yeah. opposite way from what you think. Otherwise it goes around and crashes. I can more or less, but not very well. And sometimes quite, if it's difficult, I have to like de- decouple it and move it around by hand and you get all these Swedes kind of standing there just <laughs> looking at you like, you what? You can't even do that. Come on, come on, mate. And anyway, that's how, that's, that's why I think it's more Swedish to be splitting and stacking firewood. And uh, apparently the Becker step comes from a Monica Zetlin song, no, no, which I think doesn't. we're going to have, we're gonna have Emma, to, Emma, Emma should sing for us. So, okay, first of all, it's Backa med ett slap. Oh dear. <laughs> and that's not from the song. Isn't it? No, the song is Anjöra en brygga, which means to tie up your boat at a jetty. Okay. Like, can you tie your boat up at a jetty? <laughs> that's also something that you're supposed to be able okay. to do. Okay. As a Swedish man. Can you do that, Richard? Can you tie a boat at a jetty? Um, no. I could. Citizenship revoked. I mean, what is it? Yeah, yeah. I kind of can. Uh, uh, but that's not from being in Sweden. That's from sailing holidays when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe you can keep your citizenship after all. <laughs> so one thing we hear a lot from readers is how hard it can be to forge new connections in Sweden. So it was interesting to see that the town of Luleå in northern Sweden is actively encouraging residents to say hello to each other. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this campaign, Emma, and what the city authorities hope to achieve? Well, it it hopes to convince Swedes to go against our natural instincts to avoid interacting with strangers at all costs and say, (laughs) say hi. (laughs) That might sound bizarre to a lot of listeners from other countries, that a a campaign like that is needed. Like if you go to France, for example, it's a bonjour, 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 bonjour. But apparently that's what we need in Sweden. And it's funny because I'm, I'm pretty sure that we at the local were the first ones to write about this at all. And then the international newspapers picked it up as well. But I still haven't really seen any coverage of it in the Swedish media, which I find hilarious. Because they're like, yeah, yeah, a campaign to teach us to say hi. Yeah, that's totally normal. <laughs> I rung up the the person behind it in Lilio municipality because it was, I think it was Emma's husband who had seen it on a trip to Lilio. And right. uh, and and I kind of suspected that it was going to be some kind of, they'd got some kind of publicity agency in and it was a kind of, because quite often when you find that, you know, like Gothenburg having a campaign to be the best place when it rains and stuff, it's mm. it's got some kind of PR person and it's very knowing and tongue in cheek, but this was not, she was totally earnest about it. She, she There was absolutely not a trace that she was doing this as some kind of joke on the reticence of Lulio people. She genuinely thought... Well, in Lulio, we used to say hello to each other a lot more than we do today. <laughs> we need to find a new way. It was just very, she was absolutely serious, which is really sweet, I think. And um, and, and and I suppose she's right, you know, it's nice yeah, that I people mean, say hello to each other a bit more. And I mean, ultimately, what they want to achieve is to just like help people feel kind of more acknowledged by, by other people and like they're mm. part of their communities and kind of reduce the problem with loneliness and help people get along, which... Like, which is important everywhere in the world, not just Sweden. I mean, mm. and it's tied to this thing called Granon's dog, or another one of these dogs that people love in Sweden, which they've put on Halloween. So presumably, someone like it was ten or fifteen years. It's apparently twenty years old, and they'd seen the whole Halloween thing of knocking on your neighbor's doors, and they thought, well, that's very negative. Let's give it a positive uh, thing, and make, <laughs> I can just see the kind of thinking behind it. They need to give it a pastry in order to get it to catch on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thanks for that, folks. And we'll link in the show notes to the story we have on the site if anyone wants to read more about this. Let's move on now to politics news and the party congresses that are happening at the moment. The Christian Democrats held their congress last weekend and the Greens and Liberals both have theirs this weekend. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, these are three parties that would struggle to clear the 4% threshold for parliamentary representation if an election were to take place today. We'll start with the Christian Democrats, a party led by Sweden's energy minister, Ebba Bush. What are the main takeaways from their congress last weekend? Well, I mean, the party really went back to its comfort zone, which is sort of promoting the traditional family. So they adopted a policy of increasing the amount of paid child leave people get by six months and also increasing the length of time you can go on child leave and still keep your job to three years, which is quite a long time, actually. And Mm. uh, also floating moves to increase the amount parents have to pay for their kid's dog is to kind of... I suppose, discourage people from sending their kids to kindergarten so early. I mean, that was what the sort of the main proposals that they voted on. But Ebba Bush's speech, fully three quarters of it was about anti-Semitism and the Israel-Gaza war, which seems to be part of a strategy to kind of 
attack the Social Democrats with the perception that they have allowed anti-Semitism to develop in Sweden. But the rest of the Congress, apart from her speech, was very much about family politics and much less filled with the kind of populist rhetoric we've seen from the party in recent years on gang crime, immigration and the cost of living. So there was definitely a kind of switch. And I think the reason is that Bush is finding it harder to justify her strategy of shifting the party to the populist right now that it's under the 4% threshold. So, you know, when when she was on like, I think, what was she peaking on? Like 12%? Quite, because it got really high at one point. Then everybody was like, okay, you know, this is working. But now, now it's not seeming to work so well. I think going back to family politics helps kind of cement her position with the sort of softer more sort of gently socially conservative wing of the party. It's it's something mm. that everyone can agree on, whether they're on the more populist side or on the more sort of socially conservative side. But I think that's why she's doing that. Mm. The Greens, as we discussed recently, will decide at their Congress in Örebro this weekend whether to replace Per Bulund with Daniel Heldean as their male spokesperson. And we'll bring you the news on that on the website as soon as we know the outcome. But what about the Liberals? What's on the agenda for them when they convene in Linköping this weekend? In the newspapers ahead of the Congress, the talk has all been about whether the party would say it would join or back a government which included the far-right Sweden Democrats after the next election. And so its leader, Johan Persson, said in an interview in Expressen on Monday that he would not join such a government, but that leaves the option, the open the option of supporting one from the outside. And then Jan Jönsson, who's the group leader for the party in Stockholm and a big opponent to cooperating with the Sweden Democrats, yeah. said in another interview that if the Liberals even supported a government with SD ministers, then he would leave the party and mm. a lot of other people would as well. Um, but I skimmed through the motions before the Congress, which is really thick. I mean, they have a lot of motions. And, um, and what I found really interesting is that there are motions for calling for the party to renounce the Tito agreement, leave the government, go into opposition. There are motions calling for it to commit to not doing the same thing after the next election. And then there's another motion, which is backed by Jan Jonsson and a lot of big names, calling for it to go into the next election as an independent party and not together with the current government parties. But what I found really revealing about the government is that on almost everything there's a motion on, the motions are all like grouped into categories, you know, education, Mm. whatever. And almost any question that there's a motion on, there are motions on every possible position you could take. So it's almost like the party doesn't agree on anything. It agrees on absolutely nothing. You know, so if you look at, you know, another big proposal is teachers, social work, making teachers, social workers and health workers report on people who are living in Sweden illegally, who they come across. And on that, I think that there are lots of motions calling for the party to block that. But I think there's also a motion saying that they shouldn't. And, and you know, it's, it just doesn't seem, it's a very, uh, it's, it has an enormous diversity of opinion in the Liberal yeah. Party, which I think is part of its problems. But it's very democratic, it seems, you know. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that roundup. And you wrote about these congresses in your politics column this week, which we'll link to in the notes. And you also went into what we can expect from the left party and the Sweden Democrats who have their congresses the following weekend. And that's something we may well return to in a later episode. Let's turn our attention now to the economy and the burning question of whether the Swedish central bank will raise its key interest rate when its board meets next week. What's the prognosis, Emma? Well, it depends a little bit on who you ask. So some say that they're going to leave it unchanged. 
and some say that they are still going to hike it one last time to 4.25%. It's currently at 4%. But most experts at least seem to agree that the likelihood that the bank will raise the interest rate next week has decreased radically in the past couple of months. Like okay, if you remember a couple of months ago when they had their last meeting, they said that, yeah, we're definitely going to hike it again in November, mm. but they might not do that. Okay, why Why is that? Uh, because the financial crisis is stabilizing. We're seeing inflation going down around the world. Both the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, they left their interest rates unchanged recently. It looks like we've seen the kind of worst of the slump and things are slowly picking up. And inflation in Sweden is better than expected, according to the latest figures, which we had this week. But then again, what speaks in favour of another hike is that inflation isn't falling super fast. But what's more important there is that the krona is still not quite back on steady ground after, after it uh, like depreciated a lot against the euro, for example. Right. Although it is at, it's at the strongest it's been in the past six months. So there's the concern that if they don't raise the interest rate again, the krona will then just plummet again, which they don't want. Okay, thanks for that, Emma. And we'll post our latest story to the notes and we'll be following this with interest next week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Moving on now to the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who was in the news this week over pro-Palestinian remarks she made at a rally in Amsterdam. What did she say, Emma, and how have people reacted? I mean, she has made pro-Palestinian comments in recent months as well. But at the Amsterdam event, what happened there was what, well, she wore a black and white Palestinian scarf and she urged a ceasefire, which is perhaps not a super controversial thing to say in itself, but it it is a very divisive issue. Yeah. And there's the fact that a lot of people follow her for her views on the climate crisis and not necessarily everything else. I mean, in Amsterdam, there was there was a man who came onto the stage during her speech. He tried to take the microphone from her, saying that he had come there for a climate protest and not to hear her other views. Yeah. And you're kind of definitely starting to see the sort of cracks in the Fridays for Future movement that she has built, which yeah. isn't just due to things that she has said. But the movement is kind of at a juncture now where people are like, okay, well, if I'm if I'm part of this because I want to stop climate change, does that also mean that I have to side with them on a bunch of other causes as well? And not everyone is comfortable with that. 
And all over the world, we're seeing huge demonstrations calling for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. What's it been like in Sweden? Uh, There have been big demonstrations in Sweden too. Uh, Last weekend, we had around uh, 2,000 people, according to the police estimates, who took part in demonstrations in both Stockholm and Malmö. And there were demonstrations in other cities as well. Mm. And it's complicated because when there are such big protests, you get a whole range of people and views. So the demonstrations have also been criticized because some of the people who take part are, are very much against Israel. And there have been reports of anti-Semitic chants. But there are also people involved who just turn up to show solidarity with the peaceful parts of the pro-Palestinian movement and just want the war to end. Mm. And then there was one rally that wasn't a protest so much, but which I thought didn't get enough coverage in the media, perhaps. But it was last weekend, there was an event outside the synagogue in Malmö uh, to show support for the city's Jewish community because there's been a rise in anti-Semitic attacks recently. Yeah. It was organized by a Jewish member of the left party. But there were politicians there from like both the left and the right of the political spectrum, and there were ordinary people too. So that kind of shows that not everyone belongs to the extremes on this issue. It's mm. like a range of sort of people in the middle ground as well who are just able to talk about it and just kind of want to solve it. We'll stay with the Israel-Palestine question now, and we'll listen in a moment to a conversation I had earlier this week with Matthias Mosberg, a top former Swedish diplomat and ambassador who, among many other things, worked closely in the 1980s with the then foreign minister Stian Andersson on attempts to broker peace between Israel and the Palestinians. In September, he released a book called Venen som Svek, which roughly translates as the untrustworthy friend or the unfaithful friend, and which details Sweden's politics in the Middle East over the past few decades. He also has a previous book released in English called One Land, Two States, co-written with Mark Levine and published by California University Press. And first, I asked Matthias Mosberg how Swedish attitudes to Israel and Palestine have changed over time. And we started by talking about the early years after Sweden voted in 1947 in favour of the UN resolution to create the state of Israel. Many social democrats in Sweden saw Israel as a model society built on collective grounds, and uh, but still for modern and forward-looking. So that was a, a happy period, if you like, in our uh, relations, and that that only started to be eaten away uh, with uh, the uh, increasing uh, settlements. Uh, this, this period lasted uh, until the first intifada broke out. There was more and more of violence, but uh, nothing really broke out until 1987. And uh, precisely at 1987, Sweden had put itself at odds with Israel by giving a, a rather controversial speech at the UN we decided to focus on what was going on on the occupied territories, saying that uh, as far as we can see, there is uh, not very much pointing at uh, any intention to give this back. Rather, it looks like Israel, for all intents and purposes, uh, has its uh, aim set at uh, 
keeping these territories. The Israeli ambassador at the, the UN at the time was Benjamin Netanyahu. So there, there was no love lost there from the beginning because the Israelis didn't like it all that Sweden should get involved in this. Uh, this was a time, as you know, then when Sweden had a voice in, in Europe in a completely different way than today. Mm. This was also a time when the Americans realized that they wouldn't get anywhere unless they started to talk to the PLO. And there were a certain number of, uh, of obstacles to that. So they were looking for people who were willing to help them out of this situation. And they turned to Sweden and uh, in uh, December 1988, uh, PLO finally said the so-called ma magic words and, uh, and that opened the way for a U.S. recognition of uh, the PLO, which was, of course, anathema to Israel. This is a black day of the in the history of Israel, said Shimon Peres. Mm. Can you talk about your own role in that process? Um, how, how involved were you in these negotiations? Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I was rather in the middle of it. Uh, we had visit, uh, Palestinian visits to, to Sweden on several levels, ending with Arafat. So you, you mentioned that Sweden took this sort of tougher line on Israel in, in the mid-1980s. If you go back to like the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, did Sweden remain broadly pro-Israeli in that period in the late 1960s and 1970s? After the 67 war, that, that was a turning point because uh, then pretty soon it uh, appeared that uh, the Israelis were behaving rather roughly at the occupied, uh, in their occupation policies. And uh, this was not seen keenly by the world. And uh, Sweden was at uh, the lead of, of this uh, criticism, if you, if you like. You mentioned in your book that the, the pendulum swung twice in Sweden, first in the 1970s and 1980s, where Sweden recognized the Palestinian grievances and became a broker. The second one you mention is in the 1990s when Jaran Persson was the Social Democrat Prime Minister in Sweden. Can you explain what happened under Jaran Persson? Well, I think Jaran Persson was since childhood very close to, to Israel and had very high regard about Israel. I think some people go so far as saying that uh, Persson wanted to turn the whole party uh, rightwards, which he did in, in, in many ways, and uh, somehow get it away from from the, the old Palme positions. Mm -hmm. Passion has uh, been gradually more passive in this, as has all Swedish governments since then. Yeah, uh, including the current government. Absolutely. The current government couldn't give a dime for, for this. That was the Swedish diplomat and author Matthias Mosberg. 
Uh, one milestone we didn't mention there was Sweden's decision in 2014 to recognize the state of Palestine. And even if Sweden is no longer the key mediator in the conflict that it once was, the issue is still embedded to an extent in Swedish politics. And Richard, you wrote an article recently that we'll link to in the notes about the impact of the war in the Middle East on party politics in Sweden. What do you think are the most important developments to be aware of? Well, well, the government parties, or at least the moderates, the Christian Democrats, and also the Sweden Democrats from outside the government, have been accusing the opposition parties, especially the Social Democrats and the left party, of promoting mm. anti-Semitism and of supporting Palestinian terror groups. And they've been driving that line pretty relentlessly and really quite hard, both in Parliament and on Twitter. And I, I kind of suspect they've been looking over to what happened in the UK to the Labour Party, which was, you know, really hit hard by accusations of anti-Semitism. Mm. So I, I kind of think they might be looking across the channel and thinking, oh, you know, here's an opportunity. And the attacks are mainly tagged on Jamal El-Hajj, who's the Social Democrat MP who was suspended by the party in the summer because he took part in a European Palestinians conference in Malmo. And the conference's organiser, Amin Abu Rashid, is accused of having links to Hamas and was actually arrested in the Netherlands after the conference for arranging funding for Hamas. So, I mean, if you're looking at the most important developments, I mean, yesterday was it really blew up because um, in Parliament, the Prime Minister, Ulf Christensen, said in a debate that there was what he called a terror romantique, which means, you know, like a romanticism about terrorism within certain circles in the Social Democrats. And Magdalena Anderson, the leader of the Social Democrats, reacted extremely strongly against this, calling it a terrible accusation, especially, she said, because El Hodge's daughter-in-law's family had recently been killed in Gaza. And, and he said, she said, you know, you are the prime minister of this country. How could you do this? And then later in the evening, she put out a tweet when she said that the way Christensen had been seeking to exploit the issue for party political gain was unworthy of a prime minister. Mm. And I mean, arguably, her outrage is also for political gain because she's trying to say that he's not a kind of suitable leader for the country. But I, I feel that the right wing parties are doing a lot more exploiting. I mean, they're really driving this issue hard and mm. uh, they see a sort of weak point for the Social Democrats here. And Christensen has also slipped in a speech that there was a history of anti-Semitism in the autonomous left in Sweden, which mm. a lot of experts raised an eyebrow about. And a big chunk, as I said before, of Ebba Bush's Congress speech last Saturday was about blaming the Social Democrats for the fact that the Jewish population in Malmö has pretty much halved over the past 20 years. Ilmar Riepelu, the former Social Democrat mayor, he... In 2010, at the time of another attack, Israeli attack on Gaza, he said, you know, it didn't help that the Jewish community held a pro-Israel demonstration. And he sort of said, it, you know, I would advise them to not support Israel. He was massively attacked for that and almost had to resign. So they're bringing back that. But it's not just that. If you look at, say, the Twitter feeds of people like Niklas Gilstrom, who's the former press officer of the moderate party and now press officer for the finance minister, is really relentless. I mean, he's pumping, he's putting out like, I don't know, like 10 tweets a day, linking Al-Hajj, um, this Palestinian MP, to the Social Democrats and linking him to Hamas. And he, you know, he was out yesterday saying, you know, Al-Hajj could easily disprove the thesis that he is a Hamas kramere, like a Hamas hugger, by, uh, you know, openly criticising the terror group or, or pointing to speeches or posts he's made where he's criticised them, which is kind of unfair because El-Hajj ha does constantly refer to Hamas as a terror group and he mm. described the attack in October as, you know, murderous. He is critical, but you've also got, I mean, it, some of it 
segues into kind of disinformation. You know, you've had a lot of people on the right, including Gunnar Herkmark, who's a real moderate party grandee, but also Richard Yumsoff, the SD chair of the Parliament's Justice Committee, have been claiming that Fatah, the party that runs the Palestinian government in the West Bank, which is a sister party of the Social Democrats, was also involved in Hamas's terror attack last month, which even Magnus Ransdorp, who's like a fairly right-wing normally uh, terror commentator in the U- in, in Sweden, said was, you know, there was no evidence for this. I mean, I'm actually, I'm finding Swedish Twitter or X quite hard to hand at the moment because it, it really feels there's a kind of, there's a kind of almost a bloodlust on the Swedish right. I mean, there's they seem to be a lot of support for Israel's attack and not a lot of sympathy for Palestinian citizens who are being, you know, I think 10,000 have died. And I find it hard that people don't seem to be able to both think that Hamas's attack was a terrible, awful attack on civilians and that what's happening to people in Gaza right now is is a tragedy. I, I find it... I also find it distasteful that the suffering is being exploited for Swedish domestic politics. It's distasteful for me. And it's not just happening in Sweden, it's happening in, in every country in Europe, I think. Mm. There's, it's being used for domestic political reasons. It feels like we could talk about this topic all day, but we're going to leave it there for this week. If you like the podcast, please tell other people you think might enjoy it to search for Sweden in Focus wherever they listen to podcasts. Uh, Thank you for listening. Our panellists this week were Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with a brand new episode. Until then, take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.